Weird Air listeners, Alex here, back for my first episode of season two of the podcast, and I'm so thrilled to be joined today by David Demchuk. David Demchuk is a Canadian playwright and novelist who has been writing for print, stage, digital, and other media for nearly 40 years. His debut horror novel, The Bone Mother, published in 2017, was nominated for the Scotiabank Giller Prize, the Toronto Book Award, the Cobbsar Book Award, and Shirley Jackson Award in the Best Novel category. It won the 2018 Sunburst Award for Excellence in Canadian Literature of the Fantastic in the Adult Fiction category. Originally from Winnipeg, he moved to Toronto in 1984. Today, we are discussing David's most recent novel, Red X. Men are disappearing from Toronto's gay village. They're the marginalized, the vulnerable. One by one, stalked and vanished, they leave behind small circles of baffled, frightened friends. Against the shifting backdrop of homophobia throughout the decades, from the HIV-AIDS crisis and riots against raids to gentrification and police brutality, the survivors face inaction from the law and disinterest from society at large. But as the missing grow in number, those left behind begin to realize that whoever or whatever is taking these men has been doing so for longer than is humanly possible. Woven into their stories is David's own personal history, a life lived in fear and enthralled to horror, a passion that boils over into obsession. As he tries to make sense of the relationship between queerness and horror, what it means for gay men to disappear, and how the isolation of the LGBTQ plus community has left them profoundly exposed to monsters that move easily among them, fact and fiction collide and reality begins to unravel. Hi, David. Thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you for having me. This is delightful. Throughout this podcast, um, one of the most enlightening and fun parts for me has been engaging in and unraveling my own relationship uh, to horror and apocalypse and the macabre through my own queer lens. I love to ask queer authors what their relationship to these motifs are, because in more occurrences than not, I've found that the queer authors I've spoken with almost always address these things in their writing one way or another. Um, I think I had honestly even booked this interview before reading the book simply because the summary included six words that completely thrilled me, the relationship between queerness and horror. David, you mention self-hatred in your chapter dedicated to this subject. Specifically, you say for queer readers, hatred and self-hatred were the stinging medicines we were forced to consume if we were to satisfy our need to see ourselves. I think this is the unfortunate but oddly comforting answer I've been trying to find. (laughs) And I want you to elaborate on this idea a bit, um, but I also want you to spin it differently. How can this idea of self-hatred being a stinging medicine for queer people to consume be something empowering? Well, I, one of the things that I should say about that to contextualize it slightly is that um, this speaks to, I would describe as the before times, uh, when we didn't have a lot of participation in the creation of our own media. Mm-hmm. Uh, we didn't have a lot of agency. There wasn't a lot of uh, interest in us as a, an audience, a consumer base, or as creators, except if we were to, to suppress um, all visible aspects of our queerness. So when I talk about, um, in the book, the self-hatred, the self-hatred is very much uh, the result of um, our culture um, projecting its attitudes towards homosexuality upon us. I mean, not just homosexuality, but queerness in general. And, and us having to sort of work with that as best we could once we got even the slightest bit of agency in order to represent ourselves 
in in any kind of mainstream media work. So what we were, we were the villains, or we were the fools, or we were the victims. We could never be a queer hero unless there was going to be some sort of tragic undoing in the end. But uh, at least we could be present. At least we could see ourselves, even if we were just sort of local color in the background, you know, in a demimonde of some sort where heterosexuality was sort of placed square in the center. Um, at least we existed. But the price we paid for that existence was that 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 cultural hatred and and in concert with that our self-hatred was reinforced. Once we started being able to take the reins to a certain extent, and to subvert or to explode some of the uh, images of queerness, where we could become anti-heroes or we could become heroes. Um, as anti-heroes, we could um, we could upend and we could question the heteronormative aspects of horror and other genres. Um, that's where. I think a lot of our empowerment starts to take place. And we start seeing that really in the in film, for example, in the 1960s and 70s and 80s, where even, even if um, someone like um, Catherine Trammell in Basic Instinct is a queer monster, you're effectively rooting for her. <laughs> and in fact, as the, as the so-called hero discovers that every single woman in the film is bo both bisexual and a killer, uh, you know, you start to realize, you know, well, first of all, this is some distorted, hilarious fantasy world. But on the other hand, you're also going, well, yes, yeah, so you know, more power to you. So, uh, <laughs> you know, Michael Douglas was a drip anyway, but, uh, but it's, <laughs> but those are the kinds of things that start to, that start to, uh, to, to turn things upside down. I mean, it's, it's ironic that in that same year, I think it was 1980, we also had cruising and cruising while it has, you know, a really explicit, you know, vivid sort of uh, queer, you know, kinky setting, um, it, it centers a heterosexual man. I mean, it puts his sexuality into question as part mm -hmm. of the plot and suggests that somehow uh, queerness is contagious, which is, of course, highly contentious in the film because, of course, it also suggests that murder is contagious and that somehow they go hand in hand. But everything around him is, you know, questioning the fact that he even exists within this narrative. Mm -hmm. And the only way for him to exist within the narrative is for him to be switched over effectively into queerness. Um, it's reprehensible, but it's a really interesting move. And the contrast between it and something like Basic Instinct shows the direction that we start to go towards um, as more and more queer people come up, start to center themselves in queer horror and start to... Um, to throw a bright light onto the uh, homophobic structures mm -hmm. that, that uh, encase us and encage us, um, you know, in our society. That's, I mean, that's where I think our power lies is to like, to take control of the narrative. And would you say that's, that would be the empowering part of oh, yeah. self-hatred as a medicine? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Because I mean, you, you recognize it. I mean, one of the things that was important for me when I was writing Red X was to really mm -hmm. figure out for myself why I was drawn to horror and why I had been drawn to horror from an early age, even though I was probably 
the most fearful of fearful children. <laughs> there was something about it that was so dramatic and so exciting and so adrenaline rushing, but at the same time, it was torturous for me. I yeah. mean, there were there were nightmares. There was running up to the you know there was there was I mean you know speaking of things that are you know innately queer. When I was a kid growing up, uh, the series Dark Shadows was on television, yeah. and yeah, yeah. you know many people who are going to be listening to this are far too young to even know what this was. It was a continuing daily soap opera that uh, <laughs> that was incredibly lushly gothic and, you know, and had, you know, centuries old vampires and curses and a variety of things. And there was one particular storyline and I was homesick from school. I mean, I will, I will admit that I would, I would, I would watch it whenever I could. And, and if I was homesick, that was the perfect opportunity because it was in the mid afternoon. And there was a, there was a whole thing that revolved around a head, someone's decapitated head, basically under a bell jar. And, um, and the question was, you know, were we going to be able to bring this, you know, this, this person back to life and all this stuff. And there was all sorts of quasi scientific nonsense and people in lab coats. And then they, and they leave the room and then the camera starts moving it. Now, of course I was a child. If I had not been a child, I would have known full well it was coming, but <laughs> the camera starts moving in and 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 moving in. And then he opens his eyes and I screamed <laughs> at the top of my lungs <laughs> and I tore up the stairs into my bedroom and slammed the door. My mother was doing laundry in the basement, you know, and she had no idea what was going on. So like, but things like I lived for that. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it ruined me, but I lived for that. And and at the same time, sometimes in you know, I mean, I had a crush on Barnabas Collins. I had a crush on you know any number of people on television. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, queerness was starting to emerge in a very sort of comical kind of way on TV. You know, with side characters who were who were clearly homosexual and who had all the witty lines and stuff like that. And as, as my, my understanding of, you know, how culture worked and how I fit in was starting to develop, um, these things really became inextricably sort of married to me. You know, mm -hmm. I was, I was really fascinated at seeing people who I thought could be like me. I was also really fascinated by seeing characters who were so outlandishly abnormal who were and who were and who were struggling with that to a certain extent and something like dark shadows really spoke to that for me because here was this here was a group of people it was like the adams family or the munsters but serious <laughs> and and like and trying to make their way in the world and having family drama and having things come up. and this stuff just really spoke to me and mm -hmm. and so for me it was like you know finding myself in media in general, but in particular yeah. in the media that I love, and then recognizing that, you know, as we all do, you know, those of us who are queer creators, that if we want, if we want to see it, we have to make it. We have to participate in that process. We have to find a way to uh, ensure that not only we get seen, but that we are seen for other younger people, you know, in the generations ahead who will have nothing without us. So, um, and, and some of that also meant exploring, 
you know, issues like self-hatred, you know, first of all, the hatred of the larger culture, but also the hatred we carry within ourselves because we're functioning within that culture. We're functioning within families that uh, dislike us, distrust us, don't want us, you know, at the dinner table. We're functioning within workplaces. We're functioning within government and legal and medical structures um, that, that each take their turns on us. And, and, and that stuff is all worthy of analysis and particularly worthy of analysis in a, in a, in a genre context. So, I mean, I guess jumping a little bit further into that also in your specific relationship with uh, writing and horror on page 88, you write the following. Many people try to ignore or deny or suppress their fears. I find myself drawn to mine, worrying them, troubling them like a tongue against a tooth clinging to sore and bloody gums. I want to understand where my fears come from and why and how they have such a grip on me. The question I want to ask you here would be, is writing then for you always a thing to be practiced through this lens? Um, not, well, I mean, I think there are several lenses at which to come through which to come to the material that I think is definitely one of them. Um, I mean, it's a, it's a delicate game because you don't want to re-traumatize yourself. And I have done this. I have absolutely done this. You don't want to re-traumatize yourself with your work. You, you know, there is the temptation to go, oh, well, I personally find this really terrifying. So I'm just going to dig in (laughs) because Uh, obviously other people are going to find it terrifying too. First of all, that's not true. Horror is very subjective. Mm -hmm. So um, like, for example, I have a particular anxiety around um, home invasion stories and home invasion films. Some people don't care, right? They live, they live in a skyscraper. They live on the 23rd floor. Nothing's coming in through the window, you know? So, so for them, that is not a hotspot. Um, but for them, there might be stuff around, you know, secrets in the family. There might be anxieties mm-hmm. around murderous mothers, you know, with horrible histories or something like that, which for me is like, well, I, that could be a documentary. So, uh, <laughs> so for me, like, it's like those, first of all, it doesn't necessarily work. And secondly, um, by sticking your finger in there, <laughs> you are, you are potentially doing yourself some damage. I mean, this, mm-hmm. the, I had real issues when I was working on some of the longer pieces in the bone mother, because I had decided, Oh, I'm just going to, I'm just going to go for the things that, that are right in my personal gut. And uh, because I think that's what I should do. And it was not a good idea (laughs) this time around, while it's a really personal book. And while I share a great deal of stuff that is intimate, including Mm -hmm. a lot of my intimate fears, Mm I, 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 was much more cautious this time around. I, I made a point of looking closely at the stuff that I was exposing about myself and sort of testing it out to make sure that none of it was going to cause me the same kind of um, trauma or anxiety or nightmares or gritted teeth or any of the other stuff that happened during, you know, those sections of the bone mother. And um, I mean, at one point I did have um actually it was my agent <laughs> turned to me and she did. And, 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 and rightly so she turned to me. Are you sure that you want to do this? Cause she had read some and I was like, yeah, I'm the stuff that I've put down. I am reconciled with, I'm like pushing 60. There is, there is not a lot of stuff that I need to hide about myself if I'm going to go down this road in the work. But um, my concern always is for other people and mm-hmm. how they're implicated in my work rather than, you know, me, myself, um, people can think of me 
whatever they want. So, so that was, that was a thing, but, um, but I do think for many horror writers, it is valuable and many writers in the genres in general, I think thriller writers too, and and Mm -hmm. other writers, I think it is valuable to look at the things you've always assumed within yourself, the things that have, you've always taken for granted. Um, This is an untouchable thing for me. This is a thing where I'm free to go. This is a thing where I have a lot of questions about myself. Um, and just and just pull them apart to a certain extent mm. to unpack them and see, is that really true? You know, is this really an untouchable subject for me? Is this a subject that I have a lot of questions about? If so, what are those questions and why do I have them? Um, and um, And really, I think there's a desire to really apply yourself mm. uh, because... You want to, um, I mean, maybe not everybody does, but I want to. I want to make sure that what I'm putting forward is stuff that is going to be really rewarding um, for a reader and not just sort of, you know, supernatural. I was going to say supernaturally thrilling, superficially thrilling, maybe supernaturally thrilling too. Um, but 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 stuff that goes deeper and and that provokes questions in the reader mm-hmm. as well. I think that's a rewarding process, and I think at this point in our in our history, a necessary one as well. So many aspects uh, of this book straddle lines. Uh, they exist liminally. Uh, we straddle the line between our reality and a dark underworld, fiction and nonfiction, history and speculation. Right now, I want to focus on that line between fiction and nonfiction. And you'd kind of mentioned it too, like uh, how much of yourself are you willing to reveal? Um, interspersed throughout the chapters of Red X, you, David, give the reader insight into your personal history, the vast amount of which I uh, believe to be true, just at face value. There's a long history of authors including themselves as characters in their own fiction or narrators in a kind of meta way. Um, The questions here being what are the benefits and pitfalls of formatting a novel in this way? And where do you draw the line? Well, um, it was something that I, back even when I've been working in theater, it was something that I wanted to experiment with because Mm -hmm. I felt... I mean, in theater, you're already in a situation where where everything that's happening on the stage is a construction, and and so everything is a meta narrative, whether or not it wants to acknowledge it. And so I thought, well, the, an interesting thing to do would be to to introduce me, whatever me is, <laughs> and and use that as a way of both questioning things that are going on in the construction and also to provide commentary in some ways to to create a context for whatever the construction is. And so, I mean, Red X started as a play. It had some elements of that, but not as mm. fully fleshed out as they are in the book. Hmm. Um, with the book, it was, it was apparent to me early on that I would want to have at some sort of essays or interludes throughout the book as part of the structure of the book that uh, that brought my own personal experience and personal context into it. Mm-hmm. Then there were circumstances <laughs> that uh, occurred over the course of the writing of the book and the editing of the book mm-hmm. that only reinforced that, and that only you know that that compelled me even more to uh, to go down that path. I mean, one of the things, uh, lamentably, was that when I had written the early drafts of the play, we had had a few disappearances in Toronto and they Mm. were among the things that triggered 
the writing of that draft of the play. They were dealt with in quite a different way. Basically, it was that we have we have a theater in Toronto called Buddies and Bad Times Theater. It's mm-hmm. one of the oldest queer theaters in the world. And and I had situated the play within that theater, within that space. And the the performers on stage were experiencing the haunting, the the supernatural events at the same time as the audience was. And so and so it was taking it was taking a performance and turning it into sort of a more immersive kind of uh, disturbing mm-hmm. event. And so when transposing that into the book, I wanted to be able to both have that kind of immersive feeling, but I also wanted to be able to comment on it. By the time I got around to working on the book, a friend of mine had disappeared. Mm -hmm. And then of course we subsequently discovered he'd been murdered. And of course, then we subsequently discovered the Bruce MacArthur story. Mm -hmm. I don't deal with that super directly in the book because Mm -hmm. I want to respect that distance between fiction and reality. But at the same time, I couldn't deny that it was affecting me terribly at the time that I was writing the book. And mm-hmm. one of the, and, uh, and so much so that I actually turned to a close friend of mine, uh, Ing Wong Ward, uh, who a, a journalist who's no longer with us, uh, but a very dear friend. And I said, well, I have to just, I have to stop the book. I can't write this book. And mm-hmm. she was like, no, no, no. It's even more important. You write the book now you have to find, you know, and I'm like, okay, well, if I'm going to write the book, then, th- then I have to find a way of, of dealing with that head on. Yeah. Um, not, not as a documentary of that, as much as a connection of my own experiences and my own feelings and how I am implicated in this narrative. And that's what ended up happening, um, for a good chunk of the book. And, um, and so, because then it's not just abstractly about gay men disappearing. It's really about something that is really happening in our lives, a phenomenon that we see around us and not just obviously not just in Toronto, it's happened in Montreal. It happens Mm -hmm. in New York, San Francisco, Chicago, um, Paris, Berlin. I mean, it's, it's a phenomenon that's gone on for a very long time. Um, it's, it's rarely the work of one person, although it can be one person, you know, for a sustained period of time. And, um, but it too is part of the climate of homophobia that suggests that queer people are disposable. That, mm-hmm. that you choose the right person and they won't be missed because intrinsically um, we are less valued than other people. And that for me was really important to meet head on mm-hmm. in the course of writing this book. Um, if we continue to discuss the idea that many of this novel's themes straddle different lines, uh, let's just talk a moment about history versus speculation. Um, when we delve into Nicholas's history, arguably one of the most interesting parts of Red X for me, uh, we also get the history of the real-life controversial figure of Alexander Wood. Naturally, upon completion of Red X, I started to read histories of this person who, yes, was a central figure in Toronto's founding, but also was a contributor to the foundation of the residential school system in Canada. What does Wood's history, both factual and speculative in relation to the book, say about queerness as a lineage of trauma? Well, um, I mean, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, we're, we're given somebody, we're, we're given somebody who has a statue, a yeah. bronze statue yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. in, in the middle of the gay village, oh. uh, who, who we only know of as a, a queer or potentially queer figure mm-hmm. because he, you know, committed 
and agreed to, you know, acknowledged committing sexual crimes. <laughs> you know, there's there was, you know, the, because there's a lot of vagary, there is some debate about whether or not he was genuinely queer. Um, but but the situation is that he was certainly, he, you know, he was certainly placed in a position where he where he could be considered to be queer. And and uh, in that he was a magistrate. Um, there had apparently, and of course, there's great debate about this. There had apparently been a sexual assault of a woman. Uh, the woman claimed, uh, if she even existed, to have scratched her her perpetrator's genitals. Uh, and so there was Alexander Wood, the magistrate, calling in all these men so that he could examine all of their, you know, penises and scrotums for scratches. And and of course. Um, a community which already distrusted and disliked him and disliked the fact that he was so closely uh, tied to the family compact, um, even though he was not of any great stature himself, um, they used it as a kind of a whisper campaign in order to say, you know, here, here's this queer man who's in our midst. And, um, and he, he has done all this specifically so that he can fondle all of the, you know, all of our young men. He has mm. to go. And, and ultimately, the deal he made to avoid prison with a friend of his was that he would go into exile, um, at least briefly in Scotland, and just let his shop continue to run without him. Mm-hmm. This is our gay pioneer. Yeah. Thank you, history, for handing us such a wonderful <laughs> role model. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, what, what do you do with that, right? There, yeah. of course, were hundreds of other queer people all around, (laughs) but who were they? They were petty criminals, they were sex offenders, and not because they were committing sex offenses, it was because they were queer. Because they were queer, they were being locked up. It was as simple as that. Are any of these people, you know, there were sex workers, are any of these people being held up, you know, and given statues? No, no. There were two-spirited people, they're like, are any of them anywhere? No. You know, so this is, you know, pardon me for saying so, but it's fucked. So, so I mean, one of the, I mean, uh, he's used as a device in the book. I mean, mm-hmm. I use his history fully for exactly what it is because yeah. it is so profoundly frustrating, <laughs> but, but he's a device in the book who is used to get, um, our, our, you know, our sexy, charming uh, gay villain, <laughs> Nicholas, from, uh, from the British Isles over to, to Canada, where he can really thrive. And, uh, and, and then basically, you know, I, you know, Alexander Wood goes off and dies, which is also true. Um, yeah. and, um, but his legacy lives on. And this is what the legacy is. It's, you know, it's, it's just, it's one of those things where I just, every once in a while, I, I, I actually had to go, uh, because I wanted to do this project, this mini project, where I took photographs of all the locations in the book as they exist now, all of the landmarks. Awesome, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and of course, of course, I had to go and take a picture of the statue. And I'm standing <laughs> there, and I thought, 
I look like such a dweeb <laughs> standing here taking a picture of this asshole. <laughs> yeah, right? You're like, lower your hat, sunglasses on. Exactly. You know, yeah. Run up, snap, run away, <laughs> and <laughs> off to the bijou. Like, it's like it was just so, so obnoxious. And I just thought, I look like some clueless tourist. <laughs> I was like, oh, isn't this neat? Oh, look what we have. Oh, it's just, oh. So, yeah, I mean, I could go on. I won't. <laughs> but it does, it does speak to the fact that even now, like, this is not like a statue that was erected in 1950, obviously. Mm-hmm. This is new. It is a new piece of work. <laughs> we had options. This is the option we chose. <laughs> so, so like, so again, it's like we have to we have to take control of the narrative. We have to find true heroes. We have to put them in the center of the narrative. We have to we have to back that with everything we have if we want to see representation of ourselves that we can live with. So, I mean, I, that's a big thing for me. Um, when we discuss the relationship between queer people and horror, can we say the same things about queer people and fairy tales? I ask because folklore comes heavily into play later in the novel. And just as much as I have read and engaged with a lot of horror media, I also have a very thick annotated Grimm's fairy tales on my bookshelf. Um, if, as you say in Red X, queer readers can traditionally see themselves as anti-heroes or rejectors of social norms within the horror genre, where do queer people see themselves in traditional fairy tales? Well, I think that there's a, there's absolutely a lot of overlap. A lot of what we're attracted to in horror stories has its roots in fairy tales and folklore. And, um, and we are often um, endlessly retelling um, versions or fractions of the same stories or recombinations of the same stories over and over again. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, and, and the bone mother, my first book was, was saturated in Eastern European folklore. And, yes. and, and I made a point of um, inserting queerness and transness into that book, wherever it made sense to do so. And, um, and, and, Often, again, you have characters who are who are outcasts, who are um, seen in some ways as being um, magical, but on the other hand, are are feared for being demonic because they are so outside the social norms. And witches are a fantastic example of that. Um, there's a discussion um, in the Bone Mother where we find out that. Um, the witches in a particular area were women who basically were uh, the widows and orphans of war who did not have a function um, within the uh, society that uh, that they lived within and so ultimately were banished and had to leave into the forest and became these forest women and uh, and to a certain extent forest children and and they were they were consulted upon for for medical needs. They were consulted for you know semi magical needs, curses, and things like that. But um, they too uh, just they could not be integrated within the culture any other way, mm-hmm. and um, because they they did not they did not fit the heteronormative norms, and and so uh, I think that that's very much a part of. Um, how fairy tales function is is you have a you have a situation where you're trying to 
give the rules to a certain extent or the traditions or the cultural needs um, of society through these stories. You're passing them down to children and grandchildren. Um, and part of telling those stories is telling who doesn't fit. Mm. And or, or telling stories about um, if you find yourself uh, being cast out, what it is you're going to need to do in order to survive, mm-hmm. and um, and so many of those stories, uh, and and you know, and also you know, be on the lookout for who the villain is, for who it is who's going to um, who's going to attack you or misuse you. One of the things that is um, quite um, modern and mature about many fairy tales is that a lot of the times. Um, it's not strangers who are presenting the danger. It's mm. people in your own uh, family. It's people in your extended family. Um, it's people in your community who are endangering you. And um, and that's a very real thing. It's And, and so um, it's interesting that fairy tales... Uh, do so much to acknowledge that there, I mean, there is the evil stepmother who is, you know, the, the interloper into a fractured family um, and takes advantage of, uh, of a, a fractured family situation in order to insinuate herself and then take power. And then, you know, and that's, that's an interesting dynamic. And there are, and there are, as we know from our relationship with Disney villains, there, there is a way to queer that dynamic <laughs> and make these characters fabulous as well as threatening. <laughs> Usually you give them a song or you give them some amazing right. outfits, but, right. uh, and, and, you know, and some, and some witty evil henchmen or things like that. But, um, but that's definitely a thing. And, um, and when you're a young person and you're, and you're taking these stories in and, um, and you're, and you're finding that the messages that are deep within them resonate with you within you. Like for example, with um, the little mermaid, you know, which Mm -hmm. is transparently, you know, has a trans aspect to it that, um, that, you know, benefits from a fuller exploration. Um, But even if it's, even if it's only subliminal, you know, if you're, if you're a trans person or a genderqueer person um, who is watching at, at a certain point, you're going, Oh, Hey, wait a sec. What's this about? Where am I in this story all of a sudden? <laughs> and it's a, and it's both, I mean, it's both rewarding and it's frustrating because, mm-hmm. you know, along, along with this perception comes a lot of negative baggage that of course is the result of the time that it was written and is the result of the time we live in today. So then you know, you as a queer creator can go, all right, well, why not take this story and just go all in? <laughs> just flesh just it out completely. Flesh it out completely, do the job, make it happen, and 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 make something that that represents, you know, not necessarily the most saccharine, you know, role model-y aspect of yourself, although sometimes we need that, <laughs> but 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 a fuller, more complex picture. And that, mm. I think, is something that we all benefit from. I'm not particularly, I mean, you can probably tell from Red X, I'm not particularly interested in a two-dimensional sort of, you know, cartoon villain mm-hmm. coming in, you know, as fabulous as that might be, and just, you know, wreaking havoc everywhere without any kind of understanding of, of what is going on inside of that character. I really want to know that character well, and I really want to embrace aspects of that character, which obviously as the writer reflect myself. It was funny. um, A friend of mine, Dainty Dainty Smith early on, uh, she read one of the first drafts and I had just really concerned myself with like getting it down and finishing it. Mm -hmm. And she came back to me and we were sitting and having coffee and she said, you know, it's really a love story. And I was sitting there. I was like, what is she talking 
talking about? <laughs> <laughs> where, 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 right? Because uh, there was some stuff that just hadn't happened in that draft, and this was this was not there. And she said, hmm. "Oh no, no, no! It's a it's a love story between between you and the monster." And I was like, "Okay," yeah. <laughs> yeah. and suddenly, sure. you know, the whole book just changed in front of my face, and I was yeah. like. Well, what do you do with that? And I thought, <laughs> okay, well, I either I could rip it all out, <laughs> or I'm just going to have to go all the way. And in the end, I decided to go all the way, and 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 it makes for a better book as a result. And um, and that was and that was and it also meant that it made for a more rewarding journey for me because it was mm-hmm. like, well, what what am I drawn to? in this, in this character, in, you know, in this creature, what is it, what is there about him that is me? And what is there about him that attracts me? And how does this work? You know, not just for me, but for readers, for queer people, for people in our culture overall, what is, what is it that we find attractive about monstrousness and villainy? Uh, You know, why do we like Hannibal Lecter. <laughs> what is there, you know, what is there that is appealing about him? You know, and what's the difference between the Hannibal Lecter that we saw with Anthony Hopkins and the ones and the one we saw with Mads Milkison? And how do, yeah. and how does how does that work? And and why is this someone who keeps coming back again and again and that we continue to be obsessed with and that we continue to find rewarding? And that was a thing that I thought, if I'm going to explore it, the first place I have to explore it is within me. Yeah, um, man, I think that's so, so interesting and really just makes me want to write like 30 other questions to ask you about this. <laughs> oh, for because sure. it's so true, because it really is just this like, there's something about gayness and queerness that invites you to relate and sympathize with the monster because that target has been on our back for ages you know what i mean since as soon as you can realize what's happening you kind of are the monster in that situation in society at large i mean you know i'm being really like hyperbolic here um but yeah of course there would be a desire to get closer to that and to know that and to know the complexities of that and i mean another point is just you know especially here at weird era we love morally complex characters gray areas no two-dimensional i don't want like any Villain, well, and we also know we also know that there are monsters that are born, and there mm-hmm. are monsters that are made, and and one of the things that I find interesting about Nicholas is he is a creature. I mean, I feel we can talk about this. I don't think there's mm-hmm. any secret that there's a creature at the heart of the book. Yeah. You know, he is he is the creature that I that I chose was a barghest, which is a fey adjacent kind of creature it's uh it's often characterized as being an enormous black dog but it also mm-hmm. can appear in human form and um and and like anything that is sort of in the world of the fae they they are not human they don't have human morals they don't have human interests they have their own culture they 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 have an amoral attitude towards human beings mm-hmm. um they think we're hilarious playthings uh at best and uh and and so and so th- as a result we have we have a monster that is superior to us like clearly not even thinks it's superior it's just yeah. superior to us we are like chickens we are food 
whether or not you make a chicken your pet, at the end of the day, you can eat it. And that's totally his attitude towards us. And it's only when we find out, you know, that he at one point had a human lover and mm-hmm. that their relationship ended tragically and horribly that uh, we get an understanding of what's going on within him besides the fact that he is this carnivorous predatory being. It, it doesn't motivate him directly because he would still eat us. However, <laughs> he just would. You know, he's in a place where he's like the only one of his kind and there's a lot of us and he can just eat whatever he wants. So he does. But at the same time, um, he he knows us. He has had um, yeah. an intimacy with us that goes beyond what you would have with your pet. And um, And as a result, a lot of what he's doing, which is quite twisted in the book, is colored by that. And, and it makes him um, genuinely charismatic, um, but genuinely menacing, like perhaps mm-hmm. even more menacing than if he was just a wolf or, you know, or a rabid dog or a bear. <laughs> we don't look towards the inner complexities of bears, particularly. Um, here, you know, here is something that has the fearsomeness of a of a bear, but has the complexity of something not just human, but more than human. And it's and and he is fascinating for that. And I think that we are really drawn to him for that. And he, as a character, looks for people who would be drawn to him who won't be missed. And or if they will, like their disappearance will not be rewarded with any kind of significant attention. And that's what allows them to continue to, to feed. So it's, um, it makes him, I think, quite intriguing. Certainly he was intriguing for me throughout and, um, and hopefully, you know, for the reader as well. Radex really made me think about my own relationship to loneliness. Um, yes. It's a huge theme in the novel. I had to sit and process my own feelings uh, about it throughout reading. And it really like pulls you back to childhood and adolescence as a gay man, as a queer person, and the feeling that you're really just singular in your unexplored queerness, right? Yeah. Um, I can see how this translates to my life as an adult where I feel, you know, like independence is just something that comes naturally because it's like, you know, I have always kind of had to get used to deep isolation at several points in my life. Um, As much as I do think this can almost be intrinsically tied to most queer experiences, I think younger generations are hopefully feeling less isolated than we possibly did. So the question here being, um, with more and more acceptance and normalization of the queer experience, does this queer relationship with horror and isolation become less important to younger generations? How does that relationship change when there is no basis or need to sympathize with the monsters? Yes. Well, I I mean, this is my hope as well, is Mm -hmm. that uh, younger generations uh, don't have the same experience, uh, the same isolating experience of queerness um, that many of us, uh, had. And, um, what I, I mean, first, what I find interesting and one of the things that I, uh, that I went in hard on in the book is that Nicholas is himself isolated. Nicholas is himself lonely. And he is using that to a certain extent to, to, to hook in, uh, the people that that he could consume because you know he recognizes their loneliness 
they he he is trying to find a way in to sort of to to draw them you know into into his thrall and and that is i think i mean even if you haven't had a lot of experience with loneliness as uh as a young queer person you've had some and mm-hmm. this and it leaves you open to being mm-hmm. uh predated by people um who uh, will absolutely take advantage of that. And you find, even if you don't find yourself, you know, being treated in a, a monstrous fashion, you can find yourself being stuck in a relationship because you're afraid that if you leave the relationship, you won't ever have another one, you know, or you won't have one anytime soon, or there will never be anyone better than the person you have now, even though that's obviously not the case. We just, we have this innate feeling that, um, along with loneliness that perhaps we deserve to be lonely. Perhaps we've done something to earn this loneliness um, and that that it's all that is available to us. One of the things that happens over the course of the book, and I feel I can say this, is that a group of survivors who don't know that they um, are all survivors mm-hmm. over the course of the book, over the course of many years, come together as a community and discover that they're a community um, as a result of the losses that they have suffered. And I think that's a thing that, um, that many people in my generation and of probably the one younger generation have had to experience Mm. as a result of HIV and a result of other, um, things that have, that have, uh, taken their toll on our communities. Um, I think what's great for a younger generation the current generation we have now is that that community can be constructed basically, you know, as soon as you have awareness of yourself as a queer person yeah. as you know, thanks to, thanks to, I mean, there are some problems with social media, God knows, but one of the things <laughs> that is great about social media is you can go online and you can find your people. And, um, you have to work through a lot of shit with your people, but you will find your people and, uh, or you go to university. I mean, like so many people in my generation, you know, you didn't know anybody in high school who was queer. The moment you went into university, all those people, you could find your queer people, you know, Mm -hmm. there they were. Some of them you had just gone to high school with and you didn't (laughs) know. And then there they were, right. They were at the student newspaper. They were in the queer lounge. They were doing, you know, they were running the, the little film festival. They were, they existed. They were in the theater group, you know? So, so that kind of thing can happen. It can be constructed. And that I think can lead a lot of people, first of all, out of self-hatred, because you have a community of acceptance that's mm-hmm. right there for you at a critical time and yeah. also can lead you out of that loneliness because um, you have people who, you know, for well or for ill, considering who might be in the group, but, you know, you have people who can be there for you and who you can rely on and who you can carry with you for the rest of your life. And that, and that I think is, is really important. Will this obsolete um, certain horror narratives? Maybe. And that should be, and that should happen. That's good. Mm. Um, other horror narratives will take its place. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we have other things going on to be frightened of. We don't have to be frightened of this one. But um, but yeah, I would I would like to see that you know that that this particular aspect of queer horror has the ability to grow and change and mutate, and perhaps aspects of it be left behind. Absolutely. So I guess if I was going to ask this question in a different way, because I do have like 
man, we're getting kind of to the end of this interview and I'm so disappointed <laughs> because I just want to keep going. You um, want a part two. <laughs> I mean, I like low key, I'm thinking about it. Um, but, you know, like what you've done with Red X is essentially just Ryan Murphy's wet dream of what could happen for a season of American Horror Story. Like it's just done extremely, extremely well. It's tied together the cast of characters, you the history behind it all. Um, even while writing this interview, though, um, something I realized probably way late in the game is that American Horror Story in itself is... Um, queer horror there's oh, yeah. numerous queer and trans main characters in every season pretty much they're almost always sympathetic um there's y- jessica lang <laughs> plus there's jessica lang i mean like there's sarah, sarah paulson, paulson too yeah. <laughs> she's pretty up there really? for me um but like so you know talking about uh younger generations and their their relationship to horror and then you have Ryan Murphy with what he's doing with queer horror right now, alongside the advent of, like, for example, Carmen Maria Machado having so much commercial success oh, as a yeah. queer horror author. What do you have to say about where queer horror as a genre has landed today? And, and I guess this is the question that ties back to the generational divide, for lack of a better word. Um, can it ever exist again as fringe media? Well, I mean, these things do come in cycles. Um, we, you know, there's a lot of stuff that uh, becomes hot for for a short period of time and then sort of recedes and is taken over by something else. Um, so I, I never get my hopes up too high. But at the same time, um, it does feel like a watershed moment. There is no mm. question. Um, it's a watershed moment for for queer presence in uh, in the larger media in general, um, and um, and an understanding that queer and trans people exist in the world, that they have interesting stories, that they are interesting people and personalities, that that they you know that it that you're not doing any damage to the world by letting by letting us take a turn at uh, telling the stories we want to tell and starring in those stories, you know, mm. like taking the place that we need to take um, in order for those stories to be our stories. Um, and now it's becoming, um, you know, important every time that someone is making um, content about us, uh, whatever the platform, to ask, you know, oh, this character are you going to cast it with somebody who's queer? Are you going mm-hmm. to cast it with yeah. somebody who's trans? Are you going to cast that character, uh, you know, racially in an appropriate way? Are you going to cast them, you know, in a way that's not, you know, a physical stereotype? Are you, you know, like how, how are we going to continue to expand um, the way that our stories look and feel and, uh, and our place within them? And, and, and many of us, you know, are seeing this <laughs> and going, first of all, at last, hooray. <laughs> but, it, then, but then it's like, okay, well, then how can I act as a responsible artist within this framework? Because it is still a commercial capitalistic framework. How can I work within this framework to, to both give people what they want, but also make sure that, that we are right in there. And that's where I think, um, and one of the things that's great about horror, I mean, several things. One is horror is very elastic. Mm -hmm. So you can do a lot. I do a lot of stuff in the book that uh, you would normally only find 
in sort of like weirdo literary novels and <laughs> and uh and I'm able to get away with it because it's horror and I'm and I'm and I'm using um sort of the the needs of the genre which are to surprise and disturb and unnerve and unsettle you um I'm able to use other devices that um that some other writers may not be able to use in their work mm-hmm. so that's a thing that's always uppermost in my mind is you know how can I take the book as a book and disrupt it in such a way that it works? The other thing that I'm able to do that is great with horror is people are always, uh, horror readers are always looking for something new and fresh and unusual and interesting, um, a perspective they haven't seen before because they want to be scared in a different way. You mm-hmm. don't always want to be scared the same old way. Sometimes you do. Sometimes there's comfort horror, cozy horror, but most <laughs> often there is. But most often people are looking for the thing that they haven't had before or the thing mm-hmm. they haven't had for many years, but is in a completely different sort of uh, presentation. And one of the things that's that's great about queer horror is that um, straight audiences and in particular straight women readers um, find queer culture and queer community fascinating. Yeah. And um, and are intrigued by the idea of reading something that is both at a distance from their own experience, but as women also feels very personal. They themselves mm-hmm. have also felt isolated, persecuted, um, you know, outcast, um, uh, sexualized, like all those things, and and so they're able to to read our work and they're able to find themselves within our work through sort of a side door. And, and I think that that's something that's important to honor. Um, so that I think is one of the things that is um, placing us really well at this moment. Younger audiences are curious about queer culture and community. Mm-hmm. Um, women are, you know, women audiences are curious about queer culture and community. Some men are too. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But I think that, you know, those, those groups are doing a lot to bring our work into the mainstream just by being open to our work. Yeah. So um, I think that's, that's tremendously helpful. I don't think it's something we should pander to or cater to. Mm. We shouldn't distort our work. We shouldn't distort our experiences. We have people do people do, but um, you know, in order to try to, to, to get them somehow, that you have to trust that people are going to have an investment in your work are going to come to you and they're going to find something meaningful in it. Yeah. And so it, it remains important to be true to yourself, but also, I mean, look at the opportunity and take it, you know, get that back. <laughs> <laughs> I'm too uh, old to get the bag. Someone else can get the bag. <laughs> Somebody got the gems here to get the bag. Okay? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Oh man, David, thank you so, so much for, for having this conversation. I had an amazing time. Like I said, I could probably write four or five <laughs> more interviews to, to have with you just because I, I loved Red X. I think it's a fabulous, fabulous book. Um, it's, you know, it felt like it was written for me and all well, of the like, really specific things that I love. That's the highest possible compliment. You know, I, I really, that's the thing that I really yearn for when I'm writing is for somebody to feel like this was tailor made for them. Like I had looked into their mind and went, this is for you. <laughs> like completely. And that's why I, like, I had to say it also, like at the top of the interview, like, um, 
just reading those words, the relationship between queerness and horror, if you have listened to episodes of Weird Era that, that I host specifically, it's something that just constantly comes up because I, I, I love exploring it and I want to explore it and I'm going to keep exploring it. And uh, something like Red X was just so, so valuable and came at, at a really, really interesting time as well for me. Yeah. So thank well, you. Well, you're very welcome. And I, and I have to stress also for your listeners, I mean, I am not by any means the only queer book that is out right now that deals no. with these oh kinds God, of themes of and issues. We are, we are in a really lush moment. <laughs> so yeah. I encourage everyone who has a taste for horror and suspense and thrillers to just go on in there and just find like the plethora of stuff. There's just a huge amount and, and just immerse yourself in it. It's a, it's a tremendous time. And I'm very happy to be part of what seems to kind of be a movement. So it's uh, it's very cool. Again, thank you. Thank you so, so much. Uh, everybody red X is on sale at St. Henry books already for you. Thanks listeners. <laughs>